I'm Steve Serbis, and this is the Art of Fitness. Hey everybody, welcome to the Art of Fitness. I'm Steve Serbis, and today I'll be talking to Lucas Parker. Lucas is a 27-year-old CrossFit athlete and coach and hails from Victoria, British Columbia. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology from the University of Victoria. And Lucas is also a provincial weightlifting champion, a four-time CrossFit regional champion, a six-time CrossFit Games athlete, a two-time Team Canada member for the CrossFit Invitational. Lucas is quite the Renaissance man. He definitely has a clear sense of self and really is one of the reasons why I was inspired to do this show, um, Lucas and people like Lucas. But uh, before we get into my conversation with Lucas, I'm going to change this up a little bit and we're going to do a little Q&A. If you go to the website www.theartoffitnesspodcast.com and you navigate around, you'll see a scrolling photo at one point, and on it, it says, do you have a question you want answered for the show? Well, uh, I'm getting several of them, so I'm going to answer one today, and possibly later in the future, we'll do a whole episode where it's just Q&A. But for now, I'm just going to start with doing one per episode, and um, let's get that done. This is the question of the day, and T writes, why is my trapezius muscle so big? Well, T, uh, the way you phrase that question makes me wonder if you're okay, um, because you ask, why is my trapezius muscle so big, which makes me get this image that only one of your trapezius muscles on one side of your neck is larger than the other. Uh, that would tell me that you probably have some sort of issue that you should go and see a doctor about. But if you're asking this in terms of a hypertrophy question, in terms of a bodybuilding question, and you're asking why are my trapezius muscles so big, I'm imagining that you're saying that they're overpowering the rest of your upper body, overpowering the rest of your shoulder girdle in terms of aesthetic. Um, if that's the case, chances are that you're just not isolating your deltoid. Um, the trapezius muscles are very big, load-bearing support muscles that uh, are meant to carry load and stabilize load. Um, your deltoids, however, are mobility muscles. And the deltoid is made up of three heads superficially, the anterior, the medial, which is the center, and the posterior, which is the back, anterior being the front. The thing that is most difficult about creating hypertrophy or about making your deltoids big is that, unfortunately, they don't have an antagonist muscle. Most of the muscles surrounding your joints, your minor joints, um, your hinge joints, have a, an antagonist, which makes it very easy or easier to isolate the muscle that you want to break down in order to have it grow. If you take the quadricep, for example, or the front part of the thigh, its antagonist is the hamstring, the rear part of the thigh. If you look at the bicep, the front part of the upper arm, 
the antagonist is the tricep. So when you're creating or isolating a muscle and you're creating hypertrophy in that muscle, you want to think of muscle breakdown, which means that if you flex or keep tense the antagonist as opposed to the primary mover, you're going to be creating an internal struggle in that muscle. Um, some people would refer to this as flexing through the movement. However, with the deltoid, this is extremely difficult to do, especially if you're thinking any kind of upright rowing or pressing movements. It's really difficult to isolate the deltoid. So what happens is, is the trapezius, those big muscles that attach your shoulder to your neck, take over the majority of the load, which my guess is what's occurring with your body. The easy fix to this is to just decrease load and spend more time under tension on all three heads of the deltoid. And you're going to have to experiment with this. If those loads get a little too high, chances are, by reading your question, your trapezius is going to take over. So I know this wasn't a performance question because chances are that if you're working per for, for performance, you want those trapezius muscles to absolutely turn on at the drop of a hat to support especially your overhead movements, um, your Olympic movements, your receiving position and catch position in the snatch and the cleaning jerk or driving up to an active shoulder position with any kind of pressing. However, if you're just talking about aesthetics and rounding out that shoulder girdle in terms of physique, decrease the weight, hit all three heads of that deltoid, and spend enough time under tension that you're creating some sort of microtrauma in that muscle so it rebuilds and grows during rest. T, I hope that answers your question. Give it some thought. Give it some time. If that wasn't what you were asking, please write back. Let me know, and I'll answer the question that you were asking. And good luck. Okay, everybody, let's get back to my conversation with Lucas Parker. Things I'd like you to listen for in this episode. One, the idea of balance. He goes into this quite a bit. What it means to be yourself, the power of being present, and Lucas's dualistic nature of both analyst and his own experiment. Um, something that you don't know about Lucas, which I find interesting, adds to another caveat of his interestingness, is that he was a high school choir performer and actually toured Disneyland performing in the theme park. Pretty funny. Uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Lucas Parker. Lucas, you there, man? I'm here. Lucas Parker, thank you so much for coming on to The Art of Fitness. Uh, it's a pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me. What do you have going on with you right now? We're, we're post-holidays. Um, we're dealing with some nice sunny weather here in New York. How's Canada looking? Canada is a pretty big country. Uh, so where I am in particular, it is white and uh, cold. Um, I think yesterday it was... Uh, minus 16 something like that today it's actually above freezing so we're gonna have a bunch of big puddles on the sidewalk but uh, I'm currently Gosh. standing uh, down in my basement apartment wearing uh, my uh, smoking jacket aka my bathrobe <laughs> nice nice I could picture the scene 
Uh-huh. Um, so <laughs> I really like what you're doing with um, the Open Parker project. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. I think that we're at a point now that we've had so many opens that right. uh, that that you know that could sustain your your conditioning for a little while. Um, what gave you that idea? You know, um, yeah. To sum it up for for our viewers who might not be familiar, um, I'm going through all the old CrossFit Open workouts and basically redoing them from the very first one in 2011 till the very uh, the the most recent one at the end of. Uh, the 2016 season um, and the impetus for that was just like I want to get more exposure to sort of a an intense competitive situation um, more consistently and more regularly so as sort of you know an isolated Canadian athlete on the on the west coast um, I, I didn't really go to a lot of competitions I don't really have a, a plethora of other athletes around me to sort of uh, you know, compete against in training all the time. So I wanted to something that I could sort of do on my own terms that would um, give me a bit more of that sort of competitive uh, edge kind of week to week, kind of like a game day you might have in a, in a different sport. Yeah. Um, one thing that I really wanted to ask you, because I noticed that you're writing down when you do check your previous score opposed to, to on certain wads, right. you don't check your previous score. Can, can you talk a little bit about about um, how that changes the outcome. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the, the data is still uh, being collected on that. So that's just kind of one of the, um, I guess, aspects of, of this project that I wanted to sort of turn into an experiment to see like, well, okay, I'll do half the workouts um, with knowledge of what my score was previously. Like I'll look it up the night before and, and give myself sort of a number to beat and a rabbit to chase. And then the other half will be going in blind. So I'll say, okay, I'm doing this workout. I don't remember my score. I'm just going to do the best that I can. And to sort of see like what leads to a better result. Um, and so far, <clears throat> it seems to be going in blind. Uh, for me, surprisingly, is giving me a bit of a better score. Like I'm usually, I usually think of myself as an athlete that sort of likes to have some prior knowledge, likes to have time to sort of build a game plan and strategize. Um, but uh, I guess there's the sort of paralysis by analysis factor that can come into play where if I'm so focused on one number, I could theoretically be cutting myself short of a potentially better score. Do you find that by going in blind that you might take on a pace um, that you wouldn't do if, if you knew the outcome? And do you think that is more akin to real competition than, um, than say, going in with a specific goal in mind? Uh, yes and no. Um, I think common practice for excellent um, sports performers is to do the best that they can and uh, block out completely anybody else's you know, performance around them. Having said that, if you are aware that, say, you know, in a competition where you're in, uh, let's say, the final heat and you know that someone before you just sent the event record um, and you have a specific time that's like, okay, that's first place. I want first place, so I'm going to beat that time. I don't see why that can't be a positive, uh, motivating piece of information. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think when it comes down to, like, if I think of myself as a CrossFit Games athlete, you know, we're there. We're finding out the workouts sort of an hour beforehand sometimes. And it's going right. to be better for me to just, like, visualize the process of the workout and visualize my transitions and think about you know one or two key um, performance factors for each movement, 
instead of thinking about, oh, I need this number, I need this time, I need this pace. Let's talk about your perceivable physical manifestation of biological processes as ex existing in three-dimensional space, um, <laughs> <laughs> a.k.a. the beard. I just want to get it out of the way, bro. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I, I really liked your post, your, um, your blog uh, article on the beard. And, oh, thanks and for reading I, it. Well, I want to talk about it because here's the thing is when, when I had the idea to do this show, you're definitely, um, you yourself, Lucas Parker, were definitely one of the major uh, inspirations for for why it was I wanted to do this show. And awesome. so, uh, so again, I appreciate you coming on. And the really, and the reason is, is because, you know, here's here's this guy, uh, you that that we see on ESPN with this goddamn warhammer and <laughs> this this uh, you know this this my neon orange warhammer. Yeah. Yeah, your neon orange warhammer, and you just look like this—you know, this guy that just came out of uh, of a Viking raid. Um, but there's there's obviously some depth there. And in the blog post where I'm I'm reading, you say, "Look, it's just a thing. It's just a thing that happens because you're focusing on something more important." However, there However. there there is also something, and I'm not speaking for you. I'm like for me. When I sure. look at this image of Lucas Parker on screen with this beard and this, you know, you, you obviously don't wax your body. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, when I see this image of you, automatically a brand comes into mind. And I hate to use the word brand because what I'm trying sure. to say is you're obviously expressing something that we don't hear about. And, okay. and, and this is what you know even if it is saying i'm ignoring um <laughs> my hair because i'm focusing sure. on my training um that is expressing something so I, I you know i just wanted to talk to to you a little bit about that and how much of not shaving your chest and not shaving your beard and not taking the time on grooming how much of that is how you approach life and and what it is that, you know and and how right. you say look i i don't give a a flying fuck what these other guys are doing right. i'm i'm here to focus on what i'm doing um well first off i appreciate uh your take and your angle on the question usually um you know when i do an interview or a podcast everyone's got to ask some sort of question about about the beard or the body hair or whatever um so i appreciate that yours has a little more substance to it. Uh, and I guess like to, to try and give sort of a, a concise answer, I guess my, I don't know, my, my message or my thought process behind this, if there is one beyond, um, you know, just being focused on my training is just to like, you know, be yourself. I'm, I just want to be myself. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think we do a lot of editing of, of what we say, of, of what we wear, of how we present ourselves online. And I, that comes also back to just like one's, you know, personal physical appearance. Um, I guess I'm trying to be unedited in a sense. Um, and I just have found like in my short, very short time on this earth that being yourself is a pretty good filter, um, a social filter, uh, a professional filter. Um, 
you know, we spend a lot of time and energy trying to be or be perceived as what we think might be favorable or desirable. And that takes a lot of energy to hold that up. And yeah. uh, let's say, you know, you're, uh, you're an apple and you're pretending to be an orange and great, you attract people around you that like oranges, but at some point you're going to have to let down that facade and be like, well, actually I'm kind of an apple and then you're going to have an issue. But if you put right. yourself out there as an apple 24-7, then people that like oranges will stay away and that's too bad, but people that like apples will gravitate towards you and then you have your family right there. That's excellent, man. Thank you for that. Sure. Talk to me about balance. You, I, I read something that you wrote in which you, and you're probably much better at math than me, but you said, <laughs> um, you know, if you're training three to five hours a week, that equates to about... 3% physical and that in, I think I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this sure. quote when I say that um, that is in no way balance right. your words um, what does balance look like for you man uh, I think I'm still figuring that out but I, to, to go back to um, your paraphrase there I, I guess the idea that I'm trying to get across is that uh, you know from, from, a, from a starting point yes obviously doing something for yourself physically every day is important, but thinking of it as like a single pill that you're taking, right? Oh, I got my hour in the gym. That's my pill that I took. And now I sort of go back to business as usual. Right. Um, that's just not quite, I, just, I don't think that works. I don't think that, you know, is, is balancing and is a, is a long-term sort of, uh, I guess, proper process or state for sort of a human to be in. So I, when I say like, you know, let's say if we shoot for a 50, 50 balance between, a physical um, existence and development and flourishing and a, a mental existence and development and flourishing. That doesn't mean that you're spending, uh, you know, eight hours a day working out and eight hours a day reading literature. It just means that, you know, trying to bring, I guess, a, a lot more of an awareness or, or a constant awareness of what you're doing physically to all your activities throughout the day, even when you're, you know, engaged in some sort of a an intellectual pursuit, you know, how, how are you sitting? Where are you sitting? Uh, um, you know, are, are you, ch are you chewing your food or are you thinking about, you know, the, the movie you're watching on Netflix? That's something I'm, I'm definitely guilty of is I'll, I'll just sit on my laptop and I'll watch a, you know, a half hour show while I eat my meal. Well, what if I, you know, could put that down and what if I could just like really enjoy and experience the flavor of my meal and appreciate, uh, the nutrients that I'm getting that's going to, you know, increase my performance and uh, all that sort of thing, right? So that's kind of what I think is is going to help my life, and I want to encourage other people to do that as well. It's more about being present with what it is you're doing and not just thinking of it as a Band-Aid of, of any sort. Um, yeah. In our culture, I think that, you know, people are, they, they hit their bullet points uh, for the most part. And that's uh -huh. fine. Hitting the bullet points is fine. Here's my half hour at the gym. Right. You know, I'm making sure that I'm eating organic, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it, it ultimately leads to um, a disappointment of, well, how come I'm, I'm not feeling better? How come I'm not doing better? How come I'm uh -huh. not um, thriving? Right? Uh -huh. And I think that what you just said touches on something that, um, that is really important, which is, you know, you, you have to be mentally present in physical endeavor. Um, right. Even if you're, 
like as you said before in competition and you're t- you're turning that mind off for whatever reason um to focus just on what you're doing that is that is being mentally present you know sure choose choosing not to be uh thinking about something is being mentally present in a physical endeavor um <laughs> You know what? Let's just go into section one because we're going to touch on this. Great. We're going to touch on this in section one. Section okay. one, we're going to talk about the physical. Uh, you ready for the questionnaire? I think so. I'll do my best. Oh, okay. It'll be fun. <laughs> section one, well, let's just start with uh, how many meals do you consume in a day, Lucas? Four to six meals per day usually. What's your macronutrient breakdown per meal? Does it change with time of day? Does it change with training schedule? Uh I can tell you that I have zero idea of what my macronutrient breakdown is, okay. um, but I'm definitely aware just visually that it will change, uh, you know, during the time of day. So, you know, before a workout, I will eat different macronutrients than uh, right before bed, for example. Uh huh. All right. And uh, and what does that look like, real quick? Let, you don't have to give us a, a rundown of exactly sure. what you're eating, but it, you know, over time, you've developed this savvy of looking at your plate and saying this, this, and this. So you don't measure. That's fine. That's cool. But you do have some gauge when you're looking at it. Is I need this. I need this, and I need this in order to fuel this machine. What does that look like? Uh well, for example, like breakfast. If I'm heading out for big training day, will be, uh, you know, I want to get some 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 fuel in my body quickly. So maybe some faster digesting carbs and some protein that doesn't have a ton of fat in it. Whereas, uh, before bed, you know, maybe I'll catch up on if I feel like I haven't had enough fat during the day, I'll add a lot of butter or coconut oil or avocado or nuts. And, uh, you know, maybe a little bit less carbs, something like that. All right. So you're manipulating your energy sources. Uh, I'd say so. I'm not super conscious about it. Like I, I do feel that um, people and and organisms in general are pretty in touch with with what their bodies want, um, or at least have the potential to be in touch with that. So, for example, like you know, they have a, a a big block of salt on a farm, and the horses will go lick that when they need salt, and then right. they stop licking it when they have enough salt. Um, so, if we can sort of uh, you know break free of some of the obviously enticing uh, flavors and 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 chemical compounds that that come with some junk food stuff and kind of eat mostly normal food most of the time. Um, that seems to help me fall into a decent pattern of just eating what I, what my body wants to eat. Okay. And how much time do you take between eating and training? I mean, we talked about balance before, so I'm, I'm assuming that, that you move more often than the average person throughout the day, but sure. do, do you, do you take time or, or do you go by feel? That's funny, because over the past couple of years, I've been trying to put a bit more time. Um, I, I'm thinking back to like when I was in high school playing rugby. I, I don't know why, but I would like I would eat literally right before I went out for practice in a game because I guess I felt that I needed to have some like energy or fuel in my in my body, um, which I guess meant my stomach instead of my bloodstream of my muscles. But that's a right. different issue. Um, so I would like crush a protein bar and a banana like right before running out on the field, um, and that's probably not the best uh scenario for performance right i think you want time for those things to get broken down get into your bloodstream um you want time for your your body to divert blood flow away from your digestive tract and to your working muscles um so for me i definitely now feel a lot better if i go like say like 90 minutes to two hours um after a big meal if i can hit like some sort of big workout then i'll feel pretty good and how often do you train in a day That'll vary a lot throughout the year. Um, 
but on average I'd say like four to six hours and that'll depend on if I'm doing say like two sessions um, or like one big session. So what, I'm, what I've been trying to play around with lately has been just like going to the gym kind of for my work day um, and then that'll require a lot less like warm up time. So let's say I go in and do, you know, session one and then I go home. Well, I'm going to need to, you know, eat and shower and change and do some other work or whatever. And then I'll go back to the gym and I'll have to do my, you know, hour long warm up all over again. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I can just roll from, <clears throat> you know, workout to workout to workout, have a few snacks, sort of stay warm, um, stay loose, that'll cut down my overall training time to more like, say, like four hours. Right. And is that something that you're doing new this year? Uh, yes. It's something I've always sort of thought about. Um, but at the same time, it requires a bit more, I'd say, a bit more work capacity. Um, yeah. Because you are kind of, you know, doing one big long session. Uh, so there's a, a danger there of getting burnt out or not getting enough fuel in. Um, so as I get, I guess, more resilient and, and more fit overall on average, maybe I'm able to uh, do a few days like that during the week. And then other days I'll have to go in, do a really hard session, and then just go home and chill out for a few hours. Right. Okay. Um, do you find that in this transition of working, uh, doing a, just a longer session with with a couple of breaks and some snacks just to keep your energy levels up, by the time the end of the day comes around, are you finding any alteration in intensity that you wouldn't normally find in years past? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, I think that's going to be a lot easier to reflect on in hindsight, like after, you know, a couple months or whatever. But uh, I think it depends on what's on the program, right? Like if I have something super intense on the program, I'll probably be able to bring to bring the intensity to it. Um, so the question is going to be then if I if I end up modifying my program during the week to accommodate the schedule that I want, which I think could be a dangerous path to go down, right? Mm-hmm. Do Do you program yourself? Um, on and off. Um, I like I really enjoy uh, doing my own program and thinking about that sort of thing. That's almost half or more probably of the enjoyment I find in in being a a CrossFit athlete. Um, mm-hmm. But for the past couple seasons. I've sort of had to uh, really check my ego and be like, well, I'm not getting the results that I uh, hope for and want for myself. Um, so right. I've been getting a lot of help from uh, my friend Cam Burtwell at CrossFit Vic City. Uh, he's been watching my training since day one in 2011. Yeah. And I'm finally like, well, you know, you're the, you're the guy to take over the program if anyone will. So he definitely helped me get my, uh, my best result uh, I've had at the games, which was in uh, 2015. So I'm thankful that I uh, could uh, take a check to my ego there. Yeah, that's great, man. I mean, you know, a fresh set of eyes is always great when it comes to programming. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's great. What, so here here we are pre-open. What does a typical training day for you look like um, pre-open? And I know this changes throughout the year. This is another sure. thing that I really like about the way you train is that you do bring some periodization into the game. Obviously, right. it's a sport. Obviously, you know, it's um, it's something that that is well thought out. But what what does your typical training day look like now? Uh, well, I just sort of transitioning now from uh, a block of about four to six weeks uh, where I was focusing on sort of what I was calling like upper body practice. So I wanted to get, say, like three to five exposures to uh, say, like, let's say pick a movement like pull-ups where I'll do just like a small amount of reps <clears throat> mm-hmm. and really focus on like grooving the movement, getting quality movement and getting a high frequency of exposure to the movement. And now I'm just transitioning to more of like, say, um, 
a bit of a higher volume phase where I might only hit the movement, you know, once or twice per week, but I really want to hammer um, the volume on that movement. Right. So that I feel will hopefully, since I've sort of like groove the technique a little bit with some sort of higher frequency exposure, hopefully I'll be able to handle a bit of a higher volume. And then that higher volume on, again, let's say a pull-up, will transfer over to a, a better performance in a CrossFit open workout, which are traditionally, you know, large amounts of reps um, in a span of sort of 8 to 12 minutes. How does your typical training day change from, from pre-open to, say, pre-regionals? I'd say, um, actually, like once the open kicks off, that's by then I want to be working on regional stuff. Because like by the time the open has started, hopefully I've, you know, shored up most of my weaknesses that might hurt me in the open. Right. Um, and then by then it's time to start sort of start the wheels turning and, uh, and really kick into high gear some of the more typical regionals prep, which is basically going to be um, some slightly more complex movements, maybe some heavier weights, um, some uh, completely like unique movements or things that are like discreetly categorically different between the open and regional. So for example, we've got to assume that um, in the open, there's probably going to be zero rope climbs, zero sled pushes, you know, things like that, that aren't conducive right. to, uh, um, to, to being a, in a box, exactly right. to being in a box, to being a, a lone wolf athlete with limited, um, capabilities. Um, right. so then, you know, during the CrossFit open, I'll be putting in some regional prep days where I do, you know, a lot of rope climbs and lunges and sled pushes and dumbbell snatches and pistols and, and all that sort of good stuff. Um, as well as just kind of uh, thinking about the schedule of regionals. So the Open <clears throat> is what? It's usually five weeks. It's one event per week. So it's kind of a, a marathon in that sense, or it's a basically a month-long competition, whereas uh, the regional is like six events in three days. So it's a weekend of competition. And part of it is you're on a pretty strict schedule with having, let's say, they change it every year, but the pattern they seem to have fallen into is like, you do one event kind of around lunchtime and then you rest one to two hours and then you do another event. Um, and they both have to be maximum effort. So putting in sort of a day like that where I have a set start time for two of my workouts separated by a couple hours and I have yeah. to do my best to recover in between, like that's a much different training pursuit than giving one all out effort once per week for the open. Right. Sure. So the closer you get to regionals, are you are you training like that? Are you saying okay? Yes, yeah. session, session one, nine a.m. Session two, one p.m. Yeah, something like that. Um, okay, because that's that's honestly one of the biggest challenges. For example, uh, was it twenty fifteen? The first workout was something called uh, I think it was Randy, which was seventy five power snatches for time, and then only you know an hour or two later we had to do um, a hero workout that involved rope climbs. So we have two workouts that are very grip intensive, separated by limited recovery. So that's a unique right. challenge to overcome, right? We have to, I don't know, either do some stretching or get some uh, local massage or just like have your body be used to uh, that particular stimulus. Right. Great. And leading to the CrossFit Games, um, what do you bring in to the mix? I think I bring athleticism as a big advantage. Um, if you look back at you know any of the uh, the games events where I've done well, they usually involve um, speed and explosiveness, uh, change of direction, dealing with things like obstacle courses, um, 
running, jumping, lifting, sort of things like that. Um, basically (laughs) stuff that you don't see in the CrossFit open and CrossFit regionals. Um, so that's kind of a tricky thing because like, okay, do I train, you know, for that stuff to, to give myself an advantage, but then it doesn't come up in regionals and I don't qualify. Um, or do I just do like vanilla CrossFit and hope that my athleticism will rise to the challenge? And I, that's kind of the way I'm leaning, uh, this year. I'm doing I like especially with the uh, the Open Parker project. Uh-huh. I'm basically doing a like a bunch of tried and true CrossFit workouts. Um, yeah, because I think that's what I need more exposure to, as well as some of like the basic triathlon cardio building skills. Um, yeah. So the the CrossFit games are are you more in touch with traversing space? Um, I right. know you talk a lot about transitions and transitions, and I think that's where the game is won is on transition times. But, you know, here we are, even for something like a um, like grace, right, or that double grace, uh-huh. that, that idea of transitioning, um, just having to tra- traverse space with that goddamn bar, th- <laughs> that, that's, that makes a big difference. It does, um, and that's something we've really seen come into play over the past uh, few years at the games is uh, the word I use is like it's become very ambulatory, right? Like yeah. every every event involves, you know, starting at the start mat, ending on the finish mat, yeah. covering either the length of a tennis stadium or a soccer stadium. Um, and that is part of the test of fitness, I guess, but it's also part of the spectacle, right? The The design of the competition has to be such that the crowd can clearly see who is ahead. Um so you've got to know that at CrossFit regionals, you're probably going to be, you know, flipping your plyo box and rolling your bar forward. Mm-hmm. You've got to know that at the games, you're going to be uh, probably pushing and dragging objects across a field. Um, right. And that's stuff that, you know, I, I guess I enjoy. Um, I think people think I do a lot more of it than I actually do just because of some of like the photo shoots I've done in my parents' yard with pushing sleds and flipping logs and doing right. a lot of strongman stuff, um, which is training that I that I enjoy. But again, it's not really what I need to be focusing on right. to do better. Uh-huh. And with having to traverse space, does, does that have any kind of different mental play? Um, you know, knowing that uh, I'm only a third of the way across this tennis <laughs> stadium or I'm halfway there and then, oh, I'm three-quarter, I'm almost there. Do, does that give you a little bit of a of a mental push or mental lag at all i think it makes it easier um because it just provides a bit more of a tangible sense of progress towards the finish um yeah and you know that that could vary depending on where you're at in a workout or like if you can see someone who's like three or four stations ahead of you you're like oh crap like yeah. but at the same time like that's a that's a pretty quick way of seeing where you stand as opposed to like looking around at the judges, trying to see like who's holding their hand up with a four or three right. fingers or whatever. Um, so I think, I mean, it makes the whole thing easier, more streamlined for the athletes and the crowd. So I think it's great. Great. Excellent. All right. Well, that brings us to section two, the mental. All right. uh, let's go. Um, number one, how would, how would you describe your state of mind, Lucas, in training? My state of mind in training is, uh, is very focused uh, and very task oriented. So, I am trying to think of it more and more like, you know, this is my day job. I'm here to uh, 
efficiently and effectively get through the tasks for the day with, uh, with uh, obsessive quality. Mm, great. And if you can liken your mental state in competition to a type of organic or inorganic substance, <laughs> what would it be and why? That's a good question. Uh, the answer I've come to for this one is glass. Um, just cause the last few years of competition, um, you know, it's, it's not easy. And, uh, if you have, you know, a bad event or something doesn't go your way, I've definitely found myself feeling like, oh, my whole sort of, um, you know, wall of, of, of mental strength can, can shatter, so to speak. Mm. Um, but at the same time, if things are going well, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm, I can be very sharp and piercing and have a very fine edge to me. Um, nice. So glass seemed to fit the fit the bill there. Perfect. Imagine this scenario. It's a crazy scenario, but right. imagine it for me. So you're holding a baby, a baby in your right arm. You're holding a cooler. And inside of that cooler in your left arm is a vital organ that you need to deliver to a loved one in need. You come to a canyon. You need to cross it. But the only way across is via slit zip line. You need one of your hands to hold onto the zip line. You have to cross it. You have both things in your hands. What do you put down? What do you take with you? It's a tough question. Um, and so while I understand that the spirit of the question is a dilemma, um, the, the greater intent behind the question is to, you know, glean information about one's personality, um, mm -hmm. about, you know, who I am as a, a person and how I think. So to give you that answer, I sort of will refuse the choice. Um, Great. you know, I, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll tell you right now, I will find a way to take both. Yeah. Um, I've always been the type of person that just like, I, I, I refuse to suffer from like functional fixedness. So in psychology, there's a term functional fixedness, which is where like, you know, you can only see an object for its original purpose. So for example, if you need a fork and knife, but you only have a fork, um, well, most people would figure out that you can turn your fork sideways and kind of use it to to push through, you know, a material somewhat like a knife, but right. someone who is very functionally fixed will just die because they don't have a <laughs> knife or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. Um, so, you know, I would, I have pretty strong legs. Maybe I would like, uh, squeeze the cooler between my legs and hold the baby in my arm Great. or, uh, I would, you know, shove the baby in the cooler or like, <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm, tell, I'm telling you that I would find a way. I just, I find it very like, I don't know, in, like, I don't know what the word is, but like insulting to be forced to take a loss like that. Yeah. Um, so my type of personality, like I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to find a way. Beautiful answer, man. Um, all right. A news broadcast just reports that Earth is going to be struck by an asteroid the size of our moon. Officials have known about this for some time, but the asteroid is predicted to hit within 24 hours. They can't oh, do anything about it. This will mean a certain end for our planet. How does Lucas Spark Parker spend his last 24 hours? I really enjoy people watching. So I think I would, I would want to watch how other people spend their last 24 hours. I think I'd find that more interesting <laughs> than, than trying to, uh, you know, pick one activity for myself. Um, so hopefully uh, someone's decided to keep, you know, the news channels running and I could sort of sit around and just watch... Uh, the chaos unfold or, or hopefully watch, watch the love unfold. But, uh, yeah, I just, I, 
I find the question itself very interesting. So I'd want to see like how other people, uh, you know, live out their last day. Yeah, great. Um, this is a two-part question. Uh, when when is it essential to lie, and when is it deplorable to tell the truth? Man, I don't know. I think what I came down to with um, with this one was like I think it's essential lie. Like when you feel really entirely fully good about it, if you've really if you've really taken time to think it through and you feel 100% good about it, then like you got to do it. Um, so I'm just thinking of like examples would be let's say, you know, you're a soldier and you've been captured by the enemy and they're interrogating you about your your squad's position. Well, of course, I'm going to lie to save my friends, right? Great. And, and when is it deplorable to tell the truth? I don't think it's ever deplorable to tell the truth. I think the content of the truth may be very deplorable. And, you know, by telling the truth, you may be vilified for what you say, but the actual in a sort of sort of little kernel of you actually telling the truth, I don't think is ever deplorable. What about if it hurts somebody? I think, uh, yeah, I mean, as a very broad um, sort of answer, like generally people will be hurt initially, but hopefully um, respect or feel respected that that the truth was told either about them or about the circumstance they were sort of hurt by um you know think about like like a, a relationship for example if you if you lie to someone and it saves them from being hurt then maybe that's great but in the long run like if you hurt them by telling the truth they'll feel sore about it but hopefully feel more respected uh that the truth was told who in history either real or fictional doesn't matter okay. would you describe as resilient and why that person Samwise Gamgee from the uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, <laughs> <It's great. laughs> books and films. Man, like that guy, I'm sure, you know, the viewers are familiar with Frodo basically being a whiny little bitch the whole time and then Samwise having to be just like so resilient, just keep him propped up and uh, basically be the, the backbone <laughs> of saving Middle-earth. I'm going to go back to that series now and, <laughs> and, and I'm going to look for the resiliency of Samwise. Excellent. That's great. Section three, emotions, bro. Um, what oh, is no. your idea? Yeah, and you know, if, if any of these are, are, you know, if you want to skip, skip. Okay. What is your idea of perfect happiness? I'm not sure. I think if I had a clear picture of perfect happiness, I would either move towards it or have, have taken steps to, to move towards it already because if you have a, a concrete picture of something, you can create concrete steps to, to attain it. It's probably uh, a, a process versus an endpoint, mm -hmm. um, which I think you know a lot of people wiser than myself um, have said similar things, uh, which is that you know it's all about the the journey as opposed to the destination. Um, so hopefully I can uh, get on that path. So are you moving toward your idea of perfect happiness? I mean, I think so. Um, at this point in my life, it's pretty simple sort of like task or question it's like you know do like do i am i okay with what is happening right now do i want what is happening right now like sort of yes or no and can i change that yes or no um <laughs> and and go from there great what is the opposite of fear my initial reaction to that was that the opposite of fear was ignorance because 
you know, you meet people who aren't afraid of things and you're like, well, you just don't know that you should be afraid. You're just ignorant of the, of the, of the uh, you know, impl implications and ramifications of the situation. But, uh, but ignorance can also be the source of fear, mm -hmm. right? Uh, as we've seen with, uh, with a lot of the, the political stuff getting thrown around on TV and on the internet. Um, yeah. So I, I think I'll settle on the word hope. Um, just because like, if I think of when I'm feeling fear, I feel like, you know, I want to like retreat or avoid or, or back up or, um, or sort of cower down. Whereas the opposite of that moving, moving forwards, um, seeking opportunity, you know, to me that, that means hope. Excellent. Finish this sentence for me. L love is blank. Love is a gift. Great. What recurring trait do you notice about yourself that makes you angry? Oh, man. Um, probably like procrastination and time management. Um, so things like, you know, making appointments on time, uh, just getting my getting my stuff together to head out the door. Um, things that <laughs> things that for, for my own uh, for my own uh, process and and daily life are probably inconsequential but that have an impact on others um yeah when do you experience sadness i i notice myself feeling the most sad when i hear like bad news from afar mm -hmm. um so i think with you know with with events that you're close to that are very sad um you you at least have context right you know the background you know the people involved you have some you have some context to place a sad event in. Mm -hmm. And so you can either become, uh, you know, solution focused, or you can at least have some understanding of what's happened. Whereas when I hear like, just, you know, on the radio, Oh, like someone drove a car through a crowd or someone beat up someone with special needs or something like that. Like there's no context to it. All you have is this like soundbite of just evil that you have to be stuck with. Um, so that's yeah. sort of where I get most of my feelings of sadness is from uh, is from the news. Yeah. Tell us about the last time you were genuinely surprised. I was genuinely surprised um, on I guess the the early the early hours in the morning after the uh, the recent uh, U.S. presidential election um, when uh, my girlfriend uh, woke up in the middle of the night and checked her phone and said, "Oh my God." <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, not, I'm not saying in a positive or negative way, but I was just like genuinely surprised that that was the outcome. I just didn't realize that there were so, enough people, so many people that were so, I guess, fed up with how things were that they would, uh, you know, sort of pull the trap door lever. Yeah, there, I think that that was the general washover of the entire world was surprise. On, Genuine surprise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what word or action incites a feeling of disgust in you are you ready yeah moist yeah dude it's the worst word in the english language you know what this is like turning into a sociology experiment i wonder how <laughs> i wonder how many of these interviews are, are going to produce the exact same answer for that <laughs> for that question you're yeah, not the yeah. only one moist oh, yeah yeah it's gross dude it's awful yeah why let's let's remove that what do you say 
let's let's come up with a uh, with a different word for well, that's for the that. thing there are there are so many synonyms or or substitutes you could use right and it's usually like it's almost always used in a um in in the setting of like a meal which makes it even worse because it just ruins your appetite right so <laughs> someone's got to pipe up and be like Oh, this chicken breast is so moist. Oh, oh you you did such a good job on the roast. It's so moist. Or the cake. Oh, d- dinner was moist. And dessert. The chocolate cake was so moist. Such a moist meal overall. So it's give just it. Not give necessary. It, give us give us three other other uh, alternatives. Well, in the in the context of a dessert, uh, if you're talking about a chocolate cake, you could say something like dense or decadent. That sort of gets the same idea across, right? Yeah. And in context of, uh, you know, a chicken breast or a roast, you could say, oh, yes, you know, it's very flavorful or, or juicy is a, is a good uh, euphemism for yeah. moist. Yeah. yeah. And what was the third one? The, the roast. Yeah, the roast. Just like, uh, I don't know. Like, if it is really moist, it's probably like because it's very rare or bloody. So you could, you could mention something about that. Oh, I like how it's not like too well done or I like that it's, you know, <laughs> Perfect. That it's medium rare to perfection. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, section four. Um, what is your definition of the spirit, Lucas? Section four is probably going to be the, the the hardest section here, and the one where you get the least concrete answers from from me. Um, That's fine. I think, like, as soon as I st- like, I, I feel very almost. Uh, I don't know what the word is, pretentious or self conscious, sort of answering these questions because as soon as I provide in my infinite wisdom, you know, a definition of, of the spirit or talk about creation. It's like, well, you know, who, who am I to assume that I have, you know, any, any knowledge about, uh, whatever, uh, infinite power or lack thereof that has, you know, created me or infused me with some, um, some sort of, you know, energy. I, I, um, I understand that, but also this is your journey and right. these questions are answered by you and your experience and your point of view. So, you know, I, I don't think that your um, answers will come off as pretentious at all, but if you want to skip any of these, feel free. Great. Uh, well, I don't know. I think for me, the spirit is a very, like, personal, individual, um, I guess, uh, it, it has a personal or an individual source or origin. So as opposed to, you know, um, some higher spirit sort of sprinkling dust down and us absorbing that i think uh you know we each bring our own spirit to the melting pot so to speak great man what happens to us when our bodies die uh so far all i know is that we decompose um presumably Mm -hmm. or are broken down uh by some uh man-made process um I just, I, f- I find it an interesting question and it almost goes down a big sci-fi path for me. So it's like, okay, there's my body and there's me and how do we separate, you know, what is myself and my being from my physical body and like, so let's like break it down and take it apart piece by piece. Presumably, I can say, you know, have my arm amputated and replaced with a robotic limb, but I'm still me, I'm still Lucas. Mm-hmm. Right. I can have uh, I can have a heart replacement or I can have um, a kidney put in and I'm still me. I'm still Lucas with right. some other, you know, uh, mechanical organ providing a vital function. Um, 
And we could do that piece by piece, like basically through my whole body, but I would still be me, presumably, I could, if I could still carry on this conversation, right? Yeah. Um, so then let's sort of skip a step and let's go to like, say like neural circuits. So let's say we've got the machinery to replace body parts and organs. Let's, let's skip a step and now we've got the technology to sort of replace circuitry in the brain. So let's say we could, you know, replace a very small portion of the brain with some sort of, you know, uh, artificial circuitry. And well, presumably I'm still me, I'm still myself because I, you know, I didn't have too much of myself replaced. Um, and like, could we go step by step by step until eventually, like at what point, at what, at what level of replacement, at what percentage of replacement would I stop being myself? Um, I, I, I think it has to happen somewhere. So, <laughs> um, so for me, that means that the self is rooted in, in the brain, in the body, in the circuitry. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that it's physical. I, I, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Name one event in your life that you can most closely describe as a miracle. Uh, I don't know if this is a miracle, but it definitely freaked me out. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was midnight of Friday the 13th and I was driving up over this blind hill and a black cat ran across <laughs> my path in front of me and I sort of slowed down and I was like huh well that that's interesting um I was driving home from a friend's house um pretty late at night and so I come around a corner I get to this intersection it's also kind of a blind intersection and I'm waiting there waiting for the light to turn and the light turns green and for whatever reason I just kind of sit there for an extra moment I'm not thinking about anything in particular but I'm just kind of for some reason I don't know what reason I'm just sitting there and then out of nowhere, this like sc screeching, loud, horrible, fiery noise um, quickly builds. And this car comes sliding through the intersection in front of me. So he had a red light. His wheels were locked. He was just sliding through at full speed. And then he just disappeared. And then I went about my night. <laughs> so if it um, wasn't for the cat. If it wasn't for this black cat crossing my path at midnight on Friday the 13th, I would have been just like t-boned and probably Creamed. killed yeah. wow but that's that's a miracle bro I think um, so. when do you feel most connected with creation um my short answer for this is when i'm in nature mm -hmm. uh i've had the 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 amazing opportunity and uh and luxury to be able to you know go for go for hikes and walks and some of the most beautiful places in the world and uh you know, in the Rocky Mountains, in uh, in the on the coast of New Zealand, um, and it just gives you just some sort of a special feeling, uh, which I guess is that of being connected to to nature and to everything, and to kind of just feel like the playing field has been leveled. You're just you're just another you know another crab on the beach, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but I also feel connected to. I guess creation and that word specifically when I'm, um, when I'm in a, in a, in a new city, in a foreign city, I think like when you're at home, um, <clears throat> when you're in a very familiar context and you know, you know, your local sort of patterns of behavior, you're more just comfortable thinking about like, Oh, you know, I'm like, here's where I get groceries. You know, there's the school I went to, like all these things are sort of, 
just kind of like intrinsic to where you are when you're comfortable and, and when you're at home. But like when you're in a foreign city and you have no idea about where anything is, um, you just get a much more clear sense of like, oh, wow, there are these like incredible like piles of brick and mortar and these weird like sacks of like fluid and blood kind of just like walking around and like this is just like a giant mass of things that like have been created either by uh the sun and the stars or by the little organisms themselves and it's just kind of kind of neat so basically <laughs> being being out in nature or being in the opposite of nature excellent yeah what what is the thing that is the closest resemblance for you um to absolute truth mathematics math absolute truth absolute truth i think uh <clears throat> as we work our way up the chain it gets more and more complicated and more and more uh uh or rather less and less uh concrete and clear so at the top of the pyramid i guess is like biology is life right mm -hmm. uh as as i guess a science or a, a school um, and that is supported by chemistry, right? We're all sort of piles of organic chemistry mm -hmm. and chemistry is, you know, supported by a base of physics. The, the, uh, the molecular bonds and the atoms all need to be held together and physics is best explained through mathematics. So that's kind of the, the base of the pyramid and, uh, yeah, absolute truth. Two plus two is four. Why do you feel you were put on this earth, Lucas? I haven't figured that out yet. Um, I'm, I'm trying to though. <laughs> I'm working on that one. Uh, I, again, I, f I feel it's a bit presumptuous to sort of uh, call myself out as, as having a purpose. I think that is the mindset of a lot of um, uh, tyrants and, uh, <laughs> and dictators um, that <laughs> feel that they, you know, they've figured things out and everyone should, should follow their will. Um, but who knows, in another 10 or 20 years, I might feel that I should be the king of the world. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think currently, you know, I got, I got a few good ideas that uh, I think would help people out. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so far, I'm just, uh, I guess I'm trying to work on being a good version of myself, um, keeping things relatively small and close to the chest in that sense. Like I want to be like, I guess, effective and... Um, good whatever that means like in a in a small um in a small arena uh and once yeah. i perfect that then i can feel like maybe i can branch out a bit more um and as as far as purpose goes like i i guess i try and bring that back to just like well what am i i am a a homo sapiens at the end of the day um i don't have any more purpose or i guess you could say i don't have any less purpose than any other um crab crawling around on the beach Excellent. Lucas, you know, I can't thank you enough. I, I, um, I was really looking forward to your answers and to this conversation and you did not disappoint. So thanks for oh, coming thank you, on the Steve. show. Um, how can the audience connect with you? Uh, how can we stock further stock Lucas Parker? <laughs> and I appreciate your, uh, your, your prep for the interview. I really, uh, I'm glad there's at least uh, one or two, um, uh, views on my on my blogs uh, that that are coming from you. Um, <laughs> well, they're great, and I think everybody should visit your stuff. I mean, you know, you bring some. You seriously, you bring you bring a depth of, uh, for lack of a better term, spirit to oh. what it is that we do. And um, you know, I just 
I really appreciate what you're doing and your writing and your experiments and awesome. you know it's it's great. That's very kind of you to say. Um, and I, I I'm partial to agree with you, but I'm incredibly biased. Um, <laughs> but uh, if anyone else wants to check those out, I am uh, I'm trying to be active on my website lucasparker.ca. I've got some blog posts up there, some videos, some photos, and then I also sell some pretty awesome uh, Team Parker apparel. Um, as for social media, my uh, Instagram and Twitter handles are at Tukluk, um, which is T-O-Q-U-E-L-U-C. A lot of people actually don't know what a toque is. It is the... Uh, I know what a toque is. Oh, thank you, Steve. <laughs> I know what a toque is because... Can you explain I, I, to the listeners, please? It's a hat. It's a, it's a knit cap. It's, exactly. Uh, that's, that's what you guys call it up there. I believe uh, the I believe the Americans call it a beanie. It's often called a beanie. Yeah, but, uh, I I just call yeah. it a winter hat. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yes, you know, but but I did uh, I I spent a couple years in college um, close to the border, and we had a lot of lot of Canadians that uh, looked at me like awesome. I was an idiot when I called it my winter hat because well, it was a toque. You know. Yeah, yeah. Toque toque is the correct terminology. Um, but winter hat is a close, literal uh, approximation of that. <laughs> or, or watch cap. Some people call them watch caps. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What's your favorite kind of toque? I'm going off on a tangent because i got a fave that I'm going to plug. Sure. So what, what's your favorite toque? Oh, man. Who makes it? Well, the Lucas, um, do you sell a Lucas Parker toque? I don't. I've been thinking about it, but I, I, I do have my lucky toque that I've, uh, I've brought with me to every CrossFit competition since 2010. Um, and it's in most of my avatars online, so you can uh, get a peek at it there. But it's just like, it's a crappy synthetic old, you know, thing, just black with a nice pattern. Um, so if I'm looking for a step up in quality, uh, Rogue Fitness just uh, released some pretty sweet, uh, pretty sweet toques. They have pom-pom versions and ones without pom-poms. I prefer to what? go sans pom-pom. Sans pom-pom, okay. Yeah, just in case I have to, you know, do some impromptu handstand push-ups, you know. Yeah, that's always a pain, you know. Yeah. That, but you should absolutely put out a Lucas Parker signature toque, dude. I'll, I'll be should. I'll be the first to to purchase. Awesome. Um, let's see any uh, upcoming events that we should know about. What are you doing? How uh, that we should go and see any? Um, Nothing I, I at all. Sometimes Steve. you do lectures, you, right? I mean, besides the open, for sure. Um, well. I think this year I want to be a bit more uh, public with my open workouts. Like I might try and like publish, you know, all my videos and stuff like that, which um, we'll see how that goes. But no, honestly, the, the distinction this year is like I want to basically have nothing on my plate for the season and really try and crush it this year. Um, so I did a lot of great tours. I was in uh, Australia and Europe and the Dominican Republic uh, through the, the last quarter of uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. um, and now I'm just like, getting my nose to the grindstone so if you do want to you know get in touch with me interact with me um online is probably going to be your best bet a lot of people think that uh you know because instagram is my maybe my biggest platform that that's the best place to find me but just the way that like the the notifications go on there you know unless you're on there every minute of every day you don't really get uh all the comments and messages and stuff so something like right. twitter or facebook messages or um my website email is a much more sure way of uh of getting in touch if you want to chat about anything. Okay, excellent, man. Anything else that you want to add before we go? Um, anything that's important to you? Some parting words for the audience? A morsel of inspiration? I guess just to recap what we talked about earlier in the show, um, just be yourself, you know? 
whether that means uh, not shaving your beard or whether that means speaking your mind or whether that means uh, sitting at home and not talking to anybody. If, uh, <laughs> if, that's, if that's who you are, just be yourself. Great, man. Lucas Parker, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, man. The pleasure's been mine. Thank you for having me on. Lucas Parker is in a perpetual state of planning, execution, analyzing, and adjustment. He's realistic and is the antithesis of sentimental about what his data tells him. He is methodical in his approach to training, but experimental in regards to living. He's humble. He's gracious. He's also an individual and expresses that by striving to look beneath the surface of things in order to walk his own path. These are just some of the reasons why I feel that Lucas Parker is an artist. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Art of Fitness. If you did, please subscribe, write a review. Also, go to www.theartoffitnesspodcast.com, scroll down, and do all of your Amazon shopping through the Art of Fitness portal. It would really help support. Thanks a lot. No,